0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning again. We are going to get in it today. This will be the most controversial sermon I've ever preached, and aren't you glad you're here to hear it? No, it won't be. I don't think there'll be anything inherently controversial about it. But we are going to get into some stuff that uh, is um, it's, it, it, it's sen- it's sensitive. It opens the door to some sensitive discussions. Uh, I, in fact, the title of this message is Politics and Religion. And I called it that because for years we've heard that, uh, hey, if you want to have a peaceful meal, if you have a get-, get together with family, well, there's two subjects that are off-limits. We can talk about sports, we can talk about the kids, we can talk about this, that, and the other thing, but we won't discuss politics or religion. In other words, the things that are important, the things that matter, we're just not going to talk about those things. Uh, And uh, of course, as Christians, the idea that we can't discuss religion should be anathema to us. This idea of keeping your religion to yourself, it absolutely violates the principle of the gospel because we're commanded to preach the gospel, right? uh and politics discussing politics in a democracy that's a central facet of democracy we've got to be able to talk about these things the question is what does our religion what does our faith have to say about our politics and about government does it say anything at all and you better believe it does And we're going to get into that here in romans chapter 13 today a uh, quick review after 11 chapters of doctrine wherein Paul lays out exactly what Christianity is, he begins in chapter 12 to tell us what th- all that means in terms of our day-to-day life. Uh, and up to, but not including last week, I've been giving a pretty detailed review of everything we've studied. You know, after, after you know, I get into part two of Romans, I gave a pretty detailed review of part ones, and we did that to make sure uh, we understand what we're building on. If you want that, if you want to see a more detailed recap, go back and get any message prior to last week. But right now, I just want to put it this way, because we're shifting into a new, uh, new section. Well, the whole rest of Romans, really, is the, is the second section, and it goes a different direction. Uh, but, here, but, but he's still building on this. And so my quick review goes like this. Uh, the world is a mess, and uh, evil is rampant. Evil is celebrated. This includes you, even the Jews. This is Paul writing this, uh, and uh, anyone reading this he's talking to. Uh, Yes, including the Jews, especially the Jews because they have the word of God, the law of God. Man's deepest need is righteousness because only righteousness can allow us to be reconciled to God. The law cannot impute righteousness, so the Jews are in no better shape than the Gentiles. Abraham, God's covenant man, was declared righteous before God, but not by the law because he was before the law. He was declared righteous by faith by believing God. Uh, But all of us, Abraham included, inherited a sinful nature from Adam. Paul makes it very clear that at the end of the day, that is the problem, our sin nature. God sent his son Jesus into the world to take that sin nature on himself, and God judged our sin in Christ at the cross. We are made righteous through faith in that finished work, and righteousness is imputed to all who believe through faith in the cross. We are still in the presence of sin, and we have not received the full redemption of our bodies and our flesh is still attracted to sin. This creates a tension for the believer trying to live holy before God. But God has given us a new spirit and filled us with his holy spirit. And the power he brings to that mix enables us to walk after the things of the Spirit. We, because of the righteousness with which he has clothed us, can walk uprightly, but only by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. We do that, we'll walk after the things of the Spirit. We set our minds on the things of the flesh, we'll walk after the flesh and live carnally. God has made this salvation available to everyone on the same terms, both Jew and Gentile. All of us need Jesus and he, he, he wraps up this section with three chapters explaining that God is not done with Israel. You remember he writes in chapter 12, uh, well, before that, uh, you know, before I say that, let me, let me go ahead and mention something about chapter 12. After he gives all this doctrine about uh, God not being done with Israel on top of everything that salvation is and how Israel needs salvation just like everybody else and they get it the same way, he says... In light of all that, in chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I've said two weeks in a row that that's maybe the most important, therefore, in the Bible, because all of this is true, here is how we should now live, not as a way to be saved. Okay, But as a result of being saved, since God has saved us this way, let us live our lives in response this way. Renew your mind. Use your God-given gifts in service to one another. Pursue peace with all men. Love all men. Pray for your enemies. This is the, the, the themes of, These are the themes of chapter 12. And then in verse 13, beginning in verse 1, says this. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For he does not bear the sword in vain; for he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes; for they are God's ministers at extending continually to this very thing, As attending continually to this very thing. Render, your su- render therefore to all their due: taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor is due what they're due you render it to these things now this is the go-to passage for believers when it comes to law and order and our relationship with the government uh, there are other places and we'll get to them eventually you know pray for kings and all those in authority uh, but let me remind you of the setting here this is in the, in, in the Roman Empire and in Rome they had a, Civil governments within the government. In Judea, for instance, you had a Roman governor and you had certain Roman officials, but the day-to-day affairs were governed by the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. That was the civil authority. Okay. Still in Judea, they considered themselves a religious community. And they resented the fact that they were under the thumb of Rome. But Rome, the way they did it, and they sort of inherited this uh, from the Greeks, You know, the Greeks' uh, great contribution was to get everybody, all the lands they conquered and all the people they conquered, speaking the same language. And Rome built upon that unity and allowed them to keep their gods, keep their individual laws, as long as it wasn't a threat to Rome itself. So Judea was still Judea. Their religion hadn't been outlawed. They were still allowed to worship Yahweh. And the civil authorities who governed the day to day affairs were the religious authorities. All right? And this is the world that Paul is addressing. Uh, And again, the Jews resented the ultimate authority of Rome. But what Paul is saying here in this passage is that's not justification for rebelling against Rome. We don't have to worship Caesar, but we have to honor Caesar. There are three great institutions of God. God instituted all of these things. In terms of governing society, ruling society, uh, guiding uh, society, the great institutions of God are the family, the church, and human government. God is behind all three of those things the family, the church, and human government. And this verse, at its simplest, and it doesn't stay simple, I understand, but at its simplest, it simply means that God uses human government as a means of maintaining order in societies. It is not, in my humble opinion, saying that it is God who sovereignly installs every individual person inhabiting government offices. It's simply saying that God ordained government and approves of the offices themselves. The offices in government are God's plan. The certain individuals inhabit those offices that God did not elect himself. And we'll get to some specifics here in a minute. I get it. We as Christians are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. We are subjects first if you are an american first and you happen to be a christian you've got it backwards as a christian all right and i'm not anti-american i love this country i'm a patriot but there are people today and man i've got to be really really careful because man my uh i have uh, my dander is up i've seen and heard some things this week that make me just want to scream uh and and a lot of it boils down to you cannot be a Christian and a patriot at the same time. You're either going to be a Christian or a patriot. But if you're a patriot, then you're serving Caesar, etc. And that's nonsense. We have dual citizenship. Paul's, the one that we, Paul's writings are what we base 90% of our view of, of government on as Christians. And Paul himself, what did he do? He claimed Roman citizenship when he was being arrested. Hey, you can't do this to me. I'm a citizen, a full citizen of Rome said this to a guy a roman soldier an instrument of the government whose citizenship was actually a step or two beneath paul's now was paul a patriot for rome not necessarily was he just being sneaky here no he was just stating simple fact yeah i'm, a, I'm an emissary of the kingdom but i'm also a citizen of rome now first and foremost we are kingdom people right now Paul is the one who later on in, in Corinthians will tell us, he'll explain that what we are, we are ambassadors of the kingdom to this world. But again, there's nothing anti-scriptural about claiming dual citizenship. Where it gets tricky is in determining how far to take this. We'll start with an easy one. You know, because it's, it's uh, this very verse was quoted by a government official in the last couple of weeks, this very passage about... Obeying those that are in authority, observing the laws of the land, honoring the kings, etc. Honoring the rulers, the offices, government. Uh, And I agree with that. But what happens, again this is an easy one, what happens if uh, our government tomorrow, next month, next year, makes it illegal to own and read a Bible? What if our government makes it illegal to evangelize? You can believe what you want, but you can't preach it to anybody else. If you think we're far from that, you better wake up. There are people who are literally, I'm not being hyperbolic in any, any measure. There are people who literally describe evangelism as hate speech. When they tell us we can't do that anymore, what's our response in light of Romans 13, one through 7? I'll tell you what it is. We disobey. That's right. We flat out Disobey. They tell me I can't have a Bible, can't read my Bible, and can't preach the Bible. I am going to disobey that government. Am I violating Romans 13, 1 through 7? I don't believe I am. Because everything is predicated upon the fact that I am first a Christian and then a subject of whatever government. And this isn't a democracy, people. So the the easy answer to the easy question is, How far do I uh, carry my loyalty to the government and my obedience to the government? Uh, Well, the first place and the easiest answer is when government clearly commands me to do something that the Bible tells me not to do, or the government clearly forbids me to do something that the Bible commands me to do, always obey the Bible. Always obey God. Do you understand that it was civil authorities? The Sanhedrin were, oh, that was a religious authority. No, they were, in effect, the civil authority that told the apostles in the book of Acts to stop preaching Jesus. And what was their response? Uh, What do you you expect us to do? We are 100% convinced that God told us to preach the gospel. Now, are we supposed to obey him or you? We're going to keep preaching him. And they did. Now, one of the greatest uh, teachers on the subject of submission and authority today is a guy named Keith Moore. Many of you have heard him. He's been in this church. He taught the class submission and authority when I was a Ramus student and thousands of others. Uh, And he talks about this idea of, well, how can we be in submission when we have to rebel in certain areas? And his answer is simply this. You are still in submission if you submit to the penalty. So you see the early apostles disobeying civil authority. But what happened when they were imprisoned? Did the rest of the apostles go in and try a breakout mission? Did they rebel against those authorities? Did they fight? Did they kill? No, they just went to jail. And they prayed for those who were in jail. And they got out sometimes, didn't they? Peter, miraculously delivered. Paul was miraculously delivered a number of times. So when there's a clear violation, what do we do? And and when it's something like reading your Bible, evangelizing, we know we have to disobey. What if a government declares that it is illegal to have more than one child and any further pregnancies must be terminated? Has that ever happened anywhere in this world? What do you do? What if a government says you can no longer affirm biblical truth about homosexuality? What if the government tells me that as a minister, I must perform gay weddings? These are tough, and it gets tougher. What if your government leaves you and your beliefs alone, but enacts policies that are murderous, hateful, patently anti-biblical? For instance, Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, most of you know who he was, Excellent, excellent biography of Bonhoeffer written by uh, Eric Metaxas a few years ago. Highly recommend it. Very readable, very informative. He was a German pastor. Spent some time in America, uh, but was a German citizen, German pastor. Uh, and he pondered the situation in Nazi Germany and uh, for the longest time considered Gandhi's meth- method of passive resistance. This, is, of course, is the, the route that uh, Martin Luther King uh, chose in his, uh, his activism was mostly based on Gandhi's passive resistance. And this is what Bonhoeffer considered. But in light of the existential threat to the soul of Germany and the world, he was convinced that their threat to humanity dictated that, he, uh, that the only noble course of action was actually active resistance. That he couldn't just passively resist. He couldn't just go on preaching and ignoring Nazi Germany. And his faith led him to join a plot to assassinate Hitler. He felt that's what the situation called for. Was he right? He's largely considered a martyr and a hero of the faith. And that's a little bit easier because we look back at World War II as a good war. We had a clearly... It was so black and white. We had an evil enemy. So maybe that was a little bit easier easier call to make. And it's easy for us to say, well, if it ever gets that bad, the question is, how do we know when it's that bad? Where do we draw the line? Especially in a democratic society. I want you to go back and think again about the The apostles. They did disobey civil authority. But they did not organize politically. They didn't rebel against the Sanhedrin, let alone Rome. They just kept preaching the gospel, breaking certain laws and ordinances, but paying taxes and honoring Caesar. And look at how respectful. Remember the different levels that Paul went through on his way to Rome, the different authority figures he encountered. Do you remember how respectful he was? There are a couple of books I can, I can mention here. Jeff Canfield wrote a book called When God and Government Collide that, uh, that's, uh, that I recommend. Bill Burtness wrote a book years ago called A Third Alternative, Christian Self-Government. Let me read the next couple verses and then I'll make a comment about that. In verse 8 it says this, uh, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Burtness asks this question. So you walk into a bank. The doors are open. It's business hours even. But you get in there and there's nobody there. The vault's wide open and you can see piles of cash laying out on the table. Do you take the money? Why? I know you don't, but why don't you? Because if your answer is, "I'm still afraid they'll catch me on camera," (laughs) if your answer is, "Even if I could get out the door, I'm afraid I'd still be arrested and I don't want to go to jail," that's the wrong answer. You know what the right answer is? That's not your money. It's still stealing. If you if you could if I could guarantee you you wouldn't get caught, it's still stealing. It's not wrong because it's illegal. It's not wrong because you can't get away with it. It, The threat of jail and the threat of of the, the force of law should not be what governs the believer. The force of law is there for the unbeliever, for the person without God, without conscience. We shouldn't need that. We should be being guided by our spirits, guided by the word of God. That's why it said when God instituted human governments, he knows that not everybody's going to be a believer. So the governments are there to keep the heathens at bay. Not us. We should be on, the the government should appreciate, really should appreciate the presence of believers in the community. And they used to. And they still do. Just, it's getting less and less so. I had a experience i gotta be real careful telling this because we're, we're getting out there a little bit more and more on uh, you know itunes and things like that i don't know how many people are listening but there's all every time every time i tell a story and this is why i've always been a little bit twitchy about getting us out there you know I, i'm talking to you i feel like it's family and if i get too you know, some of the juicy stories i want to tell i'm always thinking in the back of my mind what if so-and-so hears the story so i'm not going to get too specific about the time frame here i just want you to know this is a very real true and specific story uh, and I'll get specific enough, I just, uh, anyway, had this uh, roommate, okay, and uh, he was telling me, I, I, I walked, uh, came into the home one day, and he's taking pictures of everything in the, in the apartment. I'm, hey, what are you doing? He goes, well, he's, I just kind of thought it would be wise to get an insurance policy on my stuff. I got some good stuff here, and, you know, if I ever lose it. Be nice to have it insured, and they want proof that I own all the things that I'm claiming because I'm, you know, I've taken out this policy for a specific amount. So, okay. Last I heard of it for a while, I came, I went uh, on a trip out of town, came back after a few days, and as I am uh, unpacking, I get home like it's like one o'clock in the morning, and as I'm unpacking, a cop pulls up. He says, "Uh, what are you doing here? I said, well, I live here. Is that your car out there? I said, actually, it's my mom and dad's car. I borrowed it he says uh, what's your name gets all this advice. i said what's the problem here he goes well we had a break-in when uh he said well t- two nights ago i said here in the neighborhood he goes here in this house so really so anyway he was satisfied he let me alone and then i start looking around and i realize half the stuff is gone in fact what's missing is everything my roommate took pictures of and uh When he got home, I have a conversation with him. I say, what happened? What happened? We got broke. He goes, yeah, it's really weird. And what's really weird is they didn't steal any of your stuff. They just took mine. And he had better stuff than me. Don't get me wrong. But yes, his stereo system, all of his entertainment stuff, his some other expensive toys that, uh, that, uh, again... Boy, at this point, if the guy's listening, he knows who I'm talking about anyway. So, but anyway, we had expensive bicycle and things like that that just happened to be inside the house the, the night that got broken into. And I thought, wow, that's really weird. And uh, I'm really glad. That, and that's, and nothing really clicked. But it was, it was about a month after that that I moved. I had to come back a few weeks later to get some stuff that I had left. And when I came back, I go into my old room, and there is everything. That had been stolen. And everything just clicked. This guy just flat out ran an insurance scam. He took out a policy on all this stuff, had moved all of his stuff out to some place, claimed it stolen, got the insurance check, and then got his stuff back. And I was stunned. But here's the, here's the only reason I bring this up I knew this guy, he wasn't a believer. But he wouldn't strike you on meeting him or hanging out with him as an evil guy. He was, he was a nice guy, fun guy, interesting guy. He was simply amoral. He had absolutely no code. If I can get away with this, there's no reason I shouldn't. And, and, and just—and it it's such a foreign thing, a foreign thing to me. But the only, thing, the only thing that would stop a guy like that from doing something like that is the threat of getting caught. That was the only thing. It wasn't a matter of, I feel bad about this. Who am I hurting? Who is he hurting, by the way? Hurting you and me who have to pay for insurance as well. All that money, all of our rates go up every time somebody files a claim, right? And if it's a bogus claim, it should make us mad. He didn't care about that. Only thing, the only thing that would remotely bother him is, what if I get caught and go to jail? Weigh the risk. That should not be the way it is for us. We should not be looking for ways to get around things like this. And what Paul is saying here at the end of that passage I just read is if everybody made it their goal to live by the code love your neighbor as yourself, think as much of your neighbor's interests and good as you do of your own, uh, then we could all leave our doors open. We would not need all these laws. But they don't. So we do. People don't live by that code. People look out for number one, and so we need all these laws. And we need to see that these government powers, that they exist primarily for the good of society. Now listen, there aren't easy answers even in a democracy. But I want you to see, going back to the early part of, of what we read in the first seven verses, when, if we are to submit, be in submission to the government powers that are over us, what does that mean for us? in a democratically elected representative republic. Part of being in submission means being part of that process. To be a fully engaged Christian in this society means being a politically engaged citizen. At the very least, it means you have to vote. Exercise that right. If we're not taking full advantages of our rights as a a citizen, then we are not, I believe, being fully in submission to the governing authorities. And please, never forget that there are people in this world living under much, much harsher conditions. And I'm talking about governments, not simply their physical privations. These are, they're living under uh, regimes Wherein it is much more difficult to sort through these issues. Now, there are things, because of the truths expressed just in these few verses, that we have to work through issue by issue as they arise. But we have to work through them with charity. We have to understand that laws are written without the benefit of knowing how somebody's going to have to or try to apply them in, in future situations. But what i really want to say and the, and, the, and the reason i am approaching it from this angle is because we have to be solution minded to give one concrete example is this current border crisis and this is where i have seen a week full of fault finding mud slinging, and blame shifting but absolutely nothing in the way of solutions i'm not saying nobody has offered a solution i'm saying i have read a ton of stuff and it's all either I support what our government is doing or our government is now committing the worst atrocity it's ever committed and how dare you, any of you try to justify it. And I don't care where you land on that spectrum between you and God, give, but if you're going to be the person saying, my purpose in life is to show how evil this administration is, you better be coming up with at least an idea of how they could be doing it better or what they ought to be doing instead. I have seen so much, I tell you what, maybe, maybe we'll get into it Wednesday. Maybe I'll just share some of the stuff I read just to let you know what kind of stuff is out there. I mean stuff from Christians. I'm not talking about how can they be a Christian and not fully embrace this policy or that one. I'm talking about the logic they use to back up their, their, their position. It is so, it's imbecilic. And I, and I despair because there are so many people who can't see through it. But it's emotional. It tugs on your heart. And how can I not agree with this statement because we're, it, it's such a Christian statement. But just 30 seconds of thought ought to be enough for any Christian to say, yeah, but. Listen. Let me, let me read. Uh, we can get through the rest of 13 for sure. I was hoping we'd get into 14. We're probably not going to. But let me read these next few verses. In verse 11 of chapter 13, it says, And do this, knowing that the time, sorry, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. In the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's some harsh stuff. That's some pretty, uh, pretty direct stuff. And I love that what he's doing is he's tying this into the imminent return of Christ. Now, Keep your priorities straight. Read this, what we just read, in light of what Paul has already said, what he's already written for 11 chapters, especially about the Jews. Do you remember how he talked about uh, that they need to call on the name of the Lord? Yeah, they're the people of God. They've got this special heritage, but they're not going to be saved because of that. They, like everyone else, if they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. But then he goes on to say, but how will they call on him on whom they've not not, uh, believed? Uh, How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So what's he saying? We need preachers. Get out there and preach the gospel. So he's saying, then he says this. And uh, his point is, there's a couple reasons we need to live in certain ways. Paul's message is to live the gospel and preach the gospel. And here he reminds us that time is short. You know, the early apostles, the ones who are responsible, you know, through the Spirit of God for the Bible that we have today, they could have hunkered down, preached to a core of people right there in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas, and written the Bible. And then trusted the next generation to get the word out. And we're just going to trust... They could have taken the attitude, we're going to trust it to do what it eventually wound up doing, filtering out all over the world. The thing is, they were a little more intense and urgent than that because a lot of them, from their writings, it sure looks like they thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. Paul traveled as far as Spain. Andrew went to what is uh, to modern-day Bulgaria and Georgia, not Georgia, United States, the other Georgia. Matthew went to modern-day Iran. Philip went to Turkey. Peter went to a lot of the same places Paul went. Bartholomew and Thomas both went to India. Thomas died there. Thaddeus went to Turkey, Iran, and Syria. Why? Because the command was to go into all the world and they considered the time was too short to wait for another generation to do it. Paul here is noting the shortness of the time and he's urging us to conduct ourselves in certain ways for two reasons. Number one, because of the personal judgment we are going to face when we meet Jesus. That we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an answer for our deeds in the flesh. Therefore, your deeds need to be good. They need to be deeds of light, not deeds of, revel- or, you know, the things he listed there. Drunkenness, revelry, lewdness, strife, and envy. But also because of the importance of our Christian witness. Time is short. It's going to be hard enough to get the message out there in a manner that it's going to be received by the world. Don't make it harder by living a lifestyle that is contrary to the very thing you're preaching. You don't have time to undo that. And then in, in chapter 14, you have a little bit of a preview here. Uh, in fact, let me read the first, uh, first verse here. It says, "Receive the one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things." In this next passage that we'll get into next week praise and worship team, you could be coming on up here. We are going to get into uh, the verses that we hear so many people referring to today. Everybody's favorite verse in a tolerant society, is what? Don't judge. Do not judge. And this is, this is the passage where Paul uses the, who are you to judge another? We are going to see this in context, and what we are going to see is the only context Paul is referring to in this passage is, don't judge anybody in the arena of doubtful things. Things that the Bible doesn't address head on, then don't judge somebody else. What was the issue of the day? We've talked about this a couple of times. Can I eat certain foods? Can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? Can I meet, eat meat at all? And he'll give this is the, the concrete example that Paul gives is this look, somebody's going to come into your midst and say, My conscience as a believer in Christ doesn't allow me to eat meat. And he's saying, you just receive that person. Don't argue with them. But if you're that person whose conscience won't allow you to eat meat, don't Judge the person who eats meat because they're both doing it before God. One person's eating to celebrate his liberty before God, the other person's not eating to uh, honor uh, what he sees as something his conscience won't allow him to do. If they both have a clean conscience before God, then they need to accept each other. The only thing you've got to be careful about is not putting a stumbling block before somebody else. Interestingly, I want to make a big deal of this. <laughs> Uh, but he refers to the bro- to the one, the brother, who doesn't allow him himself to eat certain things, as the weaker brother. All right. Now I'll, I'll wait until next week to make a, a more specific application to our society, because I sure don't want to throw a throw a bomb in here and then close it two weeks, uh, two minutes later, and have everybody wondering where I stand on something. All right. Uh, but some of you can maybe can guess where I'm going anywhere and anyway. But all that to say is this don't judge thing is not, absolutely not applicable to things like sin. When he says here, back in uh, verse 9 of chapter 13, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, we can judge those things. For crying out loud, the world judges those things. We can't because the Bible is very, very clear about where God stands on these issues. You can't take an issue like adultery, or fornication, or stealing, or murder, and say, "Now I wouldn't murder, but I'm not going to judge somebody else who murders." That's between. No, we know it's wrong, and the Bible's clearly, uh, Bible's clear about those things. But now, he, all he's saying when he talks about "don't judge," he's saying, "Look, if there's room in the Bible to interpret this stuff." And Paul kind of shows his hand. I think the person who refuses to eat certain meat, they're wrong. I think they're a little bit legalistic. But I'm not. God's not going to send him to hell for that. And don't you cause him to stumble for that. Because if you cause, even if he's a little bit weak in that, if you try to force liberty on him that he doesn't personally have in his conscience, that's going to open up the door for him to take liberties that he shouldn't take. So just honor and respect one another and don't judge in that regard. If it's a doubtful thing, then don't judge. But we have to be. You know, we're the guardians of, of ourselves first. We have to be willing to hold each other's feet to the fire where the Bible's clear. And that's where you know, Paul will get into this later on too. When we do correct, when we do confront, we do it in love. and We do it in a way that's bound to be received or more likely to be received because what are we after? To set ourselves up as judge or are we after the restoration of a brother or sister who has fallen from an ideal? That's what we're after, right? What's at the center of this thing? What is at the center of this thing? It's not what; it's who. Jesus Christ is the center. He is the essential. Wesley said it, but I'm sure it's it's almost a certainty he didn't. uh, It didn't originate with him. It's one of those quotes that's been. uh, It's it's so beloved and so quoted that we've lost the original. But you've heard it before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Stand up with me as I make this final statement. A bold statement. And a statement that runs contrary to many things I've read this week. Do not buy the lie that Jesus was executed for being a political activist. that, That... You are missing the entire point of his ministry if that's what you believe. Rome did not kill Jesus because they considered him a threat to their evil order. Rome honestly didn't care about Jesus. Pilate allowed him to be crucified to keep peace in his little corner of the Roman Empire. What was the purpose? What was the ultimate purpose? Jesus didn't come to be a political revolutionary he came to be a savior of mankind he didn't come primarily to establish any sort of political um, order or revolution he came to bear the sin of mankind the problem as paul points out there are all sorts of problems and they absolutely include political turmoil in our world But Jesus addressed those things at the root, which is what? The sinful nature of mankind. Jesus didn't come to lead people in behaving differently. He came to bear their sins, carry them away, so that we could actually have a right relationship with God again. And so then the things we do, we do in response to a loving father, not an angry judge. That's what the cross was all about. He wasn't the activist. He was the Savior, is the Savior. And this very letter that's addressing all of these things so clearly and so head-on is the very letter where Paul tells us, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved that's saved from hell that's saved from an eternity separate from the God who made you and loves you and desires a relationship with you the life you were created to live you cannot live until you surrender it to Jesus Christ and the only way to properly surrender it to Jesus Christ is to look to the cross and recognize that was because of me that was for me I cannot be saved apart from the death of Jesus Christ. Most of you are no Hitler. There's probably not a single person in here who's a tenth as bad as he is. But compared to God's holiness and his standard, we all might as well be. Our righteousness before God, our our righteousness at its most righteous, is as filthy rags before the holiness of God god never intended this is another message that is hammered down again and again and again in the early chapters of rome uh, of romans god never intended the law to make us righteous he knew we couldn't keep it why because we're corrupt by nature what's god's solution always been a new nature this is what he offers you today if you want that that new life that new nature today is your day We're going to have a baptism service on July 8th. I think I've contacted everybody who's signed up for the baptism already. If you have made a decision for Christ and have never been water baptized since then, go ahead and sign up. the sign-up's still out there. Sign up till the day of, as far as I'm concerned. If you have never made that decision, would you please make it today and then go sign up? I would love to baptize you this close to your day of confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're going to sing a song here in a minute. But first, I'm going to pray. After I pray, as soon as I start singing, if you want to get saved, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, if you want to make the most important decision you will ever make, come right up as soon as we start singing. Because I want to pray with you so bad I can hardly wait. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. for your. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.